Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Law enforcement says they have caught a serial killer. The lead starts right now. The suspect is a married father of two and an architect in New York City, and he just made his first court appearance after being charged with the deaths of three women whose bodies were found on a Long Island beach in 2010. We will tell you how a car, burner phones, fake email accounts, and DNA from a piece of pizza led police to the suspect. Any moment, authorities are going to give all of us an update. Then... It's so hot in parts of the United States, temperatures could hit 130 degrees. It feels like if hot sauce could be felt without you having to taste it, like, and it got poured on my back. 1,000 heat records have already been shattered and more will likely burn up this weekend. Is this the new normal? And this summer's biggest Hollywood drama is not taking place on the big screen. It's happening on the sidewalks and streets is faces you know from TV and film walk the picket lines. The nanny actress and president of the Screen Actors Guild, Fran Drescher, will join us in moments. Welcome to The Lead. I am Jake Tapper, and we're going to start with our law and justice lead and the hunt for a serial killer. Any moment, state and federal investigators in Long Island, New York, will update the public on the first arrest in their decade-long investigation into the Gilgo Beach murders. This is a case tied to at least 10 sets of human remains discovered since 2010 along the shore in suburban Long Island. Earlier this afternoon, a married father of two and a New York City architect named Rex Hewerman was arraigned and he pleaded not guilty. Hewerman is connected to the serial murders of three women and is the prime suspect in a fourth Those three women were part of a group known to law enforcement as the Gilgo Four. Their bodies were found near each other, wrapped in burlap, discovered within days of each other in 2010. They were all in their 20s, and all of them, according to authorities, offered sex services on Craigslist. Now, as new details from investigators emerge, Sewing Kuhlman used burner phones and a fake email account. The district attorney says a surveillance team used a pizza box that they saw Kuhlman throw into the trash. And then they matched DNA from a pizza crust to DNA found on one of the victims. Perhaps even more disturbing, prosecutors say Hewerman took at least one of the victim's phones and used the phone to call the families and taunt the families after allegedly killing the women. Our reporters are covering this across the state of New York. CNN's Bryn Gingras is in New York City for us. CNN's Miguel Marquez is near the suspect's house 
in Massapequa. Bryn, let me start with you. What are we expecting to hear from authorities uh, when they speak at any moment? Yeah, just more details of how they uncovered this suspect. I want to tell you, though, Jake, in court, the Suffolk County District Attorney said that they actually had to stop this investigation early because they say Hewerman was still in contact with sex workers and they feared for their safety. As you said, it. this is a 59-year-old family man married with two children, pretty much flying under the radar, an architect in New York City, but had a home in Massapequa, now charged with three of those murders, but considered as you said, the prime suspect in the fourth murder, the Gilgo Four. This goes back to 2010, when those four bodies of the women who were sex workers advertising their business on on Craigslist, their bodies were found pretty much near each other, wrapped up in a burlap sacks. A couple of them were tied with duct tape, another one restrained with belts. uh, And they basically connected those four, and then other remains were found. And really, this is a case that's haunted detectives. Her quite a long time, but it picked up more steam in 2022 when there was a new administration, a new uh, police commissioner in Suffolk County who came from the NYPD. They created a task force, and that's when really this investigation took off. As you said, so much detail of how they found or connect Hewerman to these crimes. Let me go again through it. They Uh, issued 300 subpoenas. They had numerous search warrants and they collected a ton of evidence, including uh, burner cell phones that they say Hewerman used to taunt the victim's family members. He used them allegedly to do research about serial killers, about child pornography, about sadistic websites. He had fake emails that were connected to him as well. And then there is some DNA evidence that they obtained as well. As you mentioned, there were hairs that were uncovered in those burlap sacks that the DNA matching, they say, that pizza crust that they got from a pizza box that Hewerman discarded. They also found hairs of his wife in the evidence uh, on those bodies of those women. And according to authorities, his wife and his kids were out of town when these murders were actually done. So just so much detail. And I expect we'll hear more from the district attorney about how they can connect your men to these three cases, the prime suspect in the fourth. But it'll be interesting to see if he does talk about those other murders that have haunted this area of Long Island. Is he or is he a prime suspect in those cases as well? The science of forensics is just so much more advanced than it was a few decades ago. It's fascinating. Miguel, what did you find out? What more did you find out about the suspect today in Massapequa? Well, look, this is a case that has both traumatized this area just east of of New York City on Long Island and captivated it as well. In all, there were 11 bodies found in this area of Gilgo Beach. Uh, And four of them now, the investigators say they they believe they have the person who did it. I want to show you what's happening at his house because it's still very much an active investigation here. There are uh, uh, vehicles from both Suffolk County and state troopers out here. We just saw several individuals leave from the house uh, with boxes of evidence. Clearly what they are trying to do now is tie down every possible lead to every one of those deaths uh, uh, along the Gilgo Beach area in the 2010s. Um, They have been here for much of the day since very early this morning. The arrest was made last night uh, and uh, they 
are going to look for everything that they can, not only from email and cell phones, but any other physical evidence that might be in his house and possibly in his office. It's about an hour, hour and a half commute to Manhattan from here. He worked in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, once they had that partial DNA and they had him as a possible suspect, uh, they then went to collect DNA from him. They surveilled him. They watched him eat a piece of pizza, put it in a box, dump it on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. They went and collected that, and that uh, has so far solved it for them. Jake? Bryn, have we heard from any uh, of the victims' families since this development, since the arrest? We haven't heard from any of the family members just yet of the four women that he is connected to, according to authorities. We have heard from a family member of one of these other murders, which, again, we don't know if it's fully connected or if it's even tied to Hewerman. And basically, they're even saying this is a sigh of relief because, Jake, this is a case, again, that's just haunted investigators. It's haunted that community. Um, People kind of thought police didn't care, right, because these are sex workers as victims. They thought maybe just because of their occupation alone that police really gave up on this. So there is a, a new energy of this community that maybe this will get solved for all of the victims. But again, we're still waiting to hear from those four family members who, of course, you can imagine, is just, there's just a sigh of relief because they've been waiting f- so long for just some sort of answer as to who might have done this. I do want to mention, Jake, uh, we did hear from the attorney of Rex Hewerman after he had uh, his court appearance, and he did say, apparently, to his attorney that I didn't do this. He said he was doing it uh, through tears and that he seemed very distraught mm-hmm. about these charges. Uh, this is a, I know we keep talking about he's an architect, he's a family man. His physical de- appearance is interesting too, because that's also something authorities have tied him to. Witnesses uh, for one of the murders say he seemed like an ogre. And if you saw him in court, he is a very big man. And I think we're about to hear from the district attorney. Yeah, let's go live now to Long Island, New York, where the Suffolk County District Attorney and other law enforcement officials are, are giving an update. Let's, let's listen in. Homicide detectives, and he's been indicted uh, in a grand jury present, uh, presentation by the, the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office uh, for the murders of Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello. Uh, the, the investigation of Maureen Brainerd Barnes is ongoing. Uh, these young women went missing between July of 2007 and September of 2010. They were found in De- uh, December of 2010 by the Suffolk County Police Department, and then there was nothing, absolutely nothing. For, their, for the next 13 years, their cases went unsolved until today. Uh, when I took office in January of 2022, I made uh, Gilgo a priority before I took office. I met uh, with the victims until today. We were going to do it differently. And that when I showed up, you weren't going to see me calling the media and being on Gilgo Beach with a giant uh, uh, magnifying lens looking for clues 12 years after the case. What I was going to do was I was going to work with my task force. We were going to form a task force. We were going to work with the Suffolk County Police Department. We were going to work with the Suffolk County Sheriff's Office. We are going to work with the New York State uh, Police. We are going to work with our FBI. And we were going to form this task force. And we were going to work together. And we were going to, we were going to use the grand jury, the power of the grand jury, to, come to, to reach a determination in this case. So the grand jury has two things. It has power, it has reach. You can obtain documents, you could interview witnesses, 
But the other thing that the grand jury has, the grand jury has secrecy. No one knows what you do when you operate a grand jury proceeding. And we knew that when we were investigating this case and when we dealt with the media or whatever it was we were doing, um, we, were, we were playing uh, before a party of one. Because we knew uh, the person responsible for these murders would be looking at us. So we were very careful uh, how we, we, we handled the investigation. We maintained the integrity of the investigation. Uh, most, important, uh, most importantly of all, we maintained the secrecy uh, of that investigation. And I think that's, uh, that's paid dividends uh, as we've seen today. Now, um, I, you know, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, when we had the, uh, the task force, uh, the first thing we did, got together with uh, um, Suffolk County Police Commissioner Rodney Harrison, uh, and we formed the task force. Our first meeting uh, was February, February 1st of 2022. Uh, and what we did, what all of the agencies here, we made the commitment. We were going to take our talented, almost talented investigators. So in the district attorney's office, we took uh, uh, ADAs, myself included. We took analysts. We took detective investigators. And they worked on a daily basis with other talented investigators from all of the agencies here. Um, and uh, we started that in February 1st in 2022. Six weeks later, on March 14th, 2022, the name Rex Heurman was first mentioned as a suspect uh, in the Gilgo case. A New York State uh, investigator was able to, uh, to um, identify him in a database, uh, and from that point on, we used the power of the grand jury, over 300 subpoenas and search warrants, uh, looking into this uh, this individual's background to bring us to this day. So I'm I am uh, I'm proud. I, I know that this case is over, but I'm proud of what we've accomplished up to this point. I know we have more to accomplish, but I'm also uh, thankful thankful for the partnership uh, of of the task force because certainly without the participation of the task force, we wouldn't be standing here. Um, you know, before I, I, you know, I thank some some folks and, and turn it over to uh, to uh, our our partners. I just want to talk a little bit about the the evidence in the case. Uh, I know uh, a lot of people know about the case. As I indicated, uh, the uh, the victims went missing between July of 2010 and September. Uh, I'm sorry, July of 2007 and uh, September of 2010. Uh, and uh, in December of 2010, they were. Uh, the, their, their bodies were recovered. Uh, they were buried in a similar fashion, in a similar location, um, uh, in, a, in a similar way. Uh, all the women were petite. Uh, they were, um, they, they all did the same thing for a living. Uh, they all advertised the same way. Uh, and there were, uh, immediately, there were similarities with regard uh, to, the, to the, uh, the crime scenes. Uh, all, the women's, all the women were bound at the head, uh, at the midsection, uh, uh, or at the chest and later at the legs. Um, the other thing I think that that um, uh, was was uh, that's been talked about in the uh, in the media was they were bound by um, burlap. Uh, media, uh, that has taken a life of its own in the media, and the burlap has has been described 
or thought to be uh, the burlap that's used at a nursery. For uh, That's not the burlap that was used in this case. The burlap is, it was camouflage burlap uh, used for duck blinds, so hunting. Um, uh, so uh, I, obviously it, it, it was used to hide, uh, purposely hide the bodies. Um, one thing that became immediately apparent uh, th was at the time of the, uh, each of the murders, uh, the murderer, the, the defendant, Herman, uh, he got a, a, uh, he got a, a cell phone uh, and a burner phone, which, uh, which is prepaid and anonymous. And for each of the murders, he got an individual burner phone, and he used that to communicate with the victims. Uh, then shortly after uh, the death of the victims, uh, he then would, uh, would get rid of the burner phone. Uh, and uh, right away in December of 2012, uh, FBI uh, cast analysts, uh, special agents with the cast unit of the FBI, they immediately began looking at that cell site uh, uh, data. They compared the victims' phones with, uh, with the burner phones, and they immediately honed in on some, some similarities specifically uh, in the Massapequa Park area. And they looked at the, an area of a confluence of four cell towers. Uh, and they realized that this was, had uh, significance because uh, the, the uh, per perpetrator of these crimes was probably located within this area uh, during, at or around the times of the murder. Uh, and that was mapped out. That was called the box. And it was an area uh, in Massapequa Park. Uh, the FBI also managed to do that for an area in mid Midtown Manhattan. Um, and so that was, that was an investigative lead. The other uh, investigative lead at the time was, even though there, there was a significant amount of time that elapsed with regard to uh, before the, 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 uh, the victims were recovered, there was some, uh, some significant evidence recovered. Uh, specifically, there was a uh, um, hair recovered from Maureen uh, Brainerd Barnes from a belt buckle that was around her legs. Uh, there, uh, with regard to Megan Waterman, uh, there were three hairs recovered um, uh, from from her. Uh, one uh, from around her head area, one from around her, her her leg area in the burlap, and then there was one caught in between the tape. Uh, and uh, that was recovered. Uh, Amber Costello also had a hair, a significant hair that was recovered uh, during the time, uh, during the, the time of the recovery. But uh, again, uh, the crime scene, because it w was out there for so long and because uh, it was exposed to the elements, uh, those hairs were degraded, so you couldn't use traditional DNA um, analysis on it. You would, uh, you would have to wait uh, and use mitochondrial DNA. And back in uh, 2010, the technology wasn't there for mitochondrial DNA. So the investigation proceeded, but also technology proceeded as well. Uh, and then in January and February of 2022, we've, we formed the task force. We began working uh, collectively. Uh, and then a mere six weeks later, on March 14, 2022, Rex Heurman was identified for the first time. Uh, and the manner in which that was done was uh, the New York State investigator looked at a database. Uh, Amber Costello, the day before her uh, disappearance on September 1st, uh, 2010, uh, she, uh, uh, con uh, she um, met with an, an individual for the purposes of, of having him pay her money uh, for, for her services. Um, 
but she uh, she would involve she involved herself in a ruse where and, uh, other individuals came into the the house, pretended to be a significant others, confronted individual. Uh, with the purpose of, of making that individual uncomfortable, having him leave without retrieving his money. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, so uh, that individual was identified as, as a person who was between 6'4 and 6'6, uh, a, a large man, thickly built, not necessarily overly muscular, but just a naturally uh, big person with glasses, white, uh, and, and dark hair. Uh, also of significance, um, that the fact that he was drunk, uh, Ava, uh, uh, first, uh, first generation, uh, Chevrolet avalanche with a, a, a very, uh, unique feature that was between the, the, it was a pickup truck. So it was between the cab and the bed. Uh, and that was identified again. That was back, uh, in, uh, 2010. Uh, but it, w it wasn't until, uh, March of, of, of 2022, uh, that that database uh, was by, was was dis was searched uh, by the the task force, uh, and this individual uh, uh, was was identified. Uh, that I, uh, that individual was uh, Rex Hurman, the defendant. Uh, and right away there were some con commonalities that came right to the fore. Rex Hurman, six four, largely uh, a large person, not necessarily uh, muscular, but a, a very uh, physically large person. Uh, he has glasses, dark hair. Killer note, he owned at the time that first generation Chevy Avalanche. Uh, but there was more. Uh, he lived at 105 First Avenue, which was located within that box area that the FBI first uh, discovered in, in 2012. Uh, but there was more. Uh, also, he worked at the time at an architect, as an, uh, he owned his own architectural firm uh, at an address at 19 West 36th Street in Midtown Manhattan. And that was also the area of interest that was identified by the FBI in 2012. Uh, again, that was March 14th, uh, 2022. Uh, and from that point on, our, our partners and uh, my office, we used the grand jury to continue to investigate. And we executed over 300 subpoenas, search warrants pertaining to this individual to find out more information. Uh, one of the things that we did is we followed him because we wanted to get an abandonment sample of his DNA, uh, which we were able to do. Uh, we also got uh, DNA samples, abandonment samples from his family. And then we went back and we got mitochondrial DNA testing and with regard to, um, you know, and, you know, uh, there's, an, there's a, uh, an aspect of New York State law that doesn't allow me to talk about uh, DNA testing, uh, specifically at press conferences. It's, um, so I can't do that. However, at the, um, at the uh, uh, arraignment uh, and also when we filed our bail letter, we talked about the significance of that uh, evidence. So if anyone needs to see that. But, but uh, suffice to say, uh, that evidence was significant, uh, especially with regard to uh, the other evidence that we had developed. But it was, uh, there was uh, another interesting aspect. We looked at the Yerman family uh, travel records, and we learned that during the murders of 
the last three women, um, Bartholomew, Waterman, and Costello, that during the commission of those murders, the, the, uh, the defendant's wife and children were, uh, were out of New York State, and he was alone in the tri-state area. Uh, we also went back and looked at his cell site records, and we, we, we compared his personal cell site records with that of the four target phones, and we saw that there was areas of commonality. In other words, that whenever the, the target phones would, uh, would, would bounce off a cell tower, if, if the uh, Yerman uh, personal phone uh, bounced off a, a, a tower, it was always consistent and in close proximity uh, with the target phones. And at no time was there ever an instant where those target phones were, for instance, in New Jersey while uh, the defendant was, was on Long Island. Uh, so that was completely um, uh, consistent. The other thing that we looked at was uh, we looked at his use of burner phones, uh, and we, we followed using the grand jury, using the great investigative help from our partners, we followed his use of burner phones. We were able to uh, identify seven separate burner phones that he used. We were able to use fictitious uh, or fraudulent email addresses and get Google warrants, and from there we got his searches. Uh, and we learned uh, what, we, what, uh, the individ what the defendant was searching. Uh, in a 14-month period, he had over 200 searches pertaining to uh, the Gilgo investigation. Uh, not only were those, uh, was he looking at uh, in investigative insight, uh, he was looking, trying to figure out how is the task force using cell phones to try to figure out what's happening. What are the developments with regard to the task force? And this, uh, this really um, um, supported our decision to keep our investigative um, focus secret because we knew that this one person would be watching and we didn't want to give him uh, any insight into what we were doing. And we also didn't want him to know just how close we were getting. Uh, so we maintained the, the, the grand jury secrecy and we maintained the integrity of our investigation. Uh, in addition to those, those uh, um, uh, Gilgo searches, he was searching, compulsively searching pictures of the victims but not only pictures of the victims, pictures of their, uh, their uh, relatives, their, their, their sisters, uh, their children, uh, and he was trying to locate those individuals. Uh, in addition to that, there was a lot of uh, torture, uh, porn, and, and uh, um, what you would consider uh, you know, uh, um, depictions of women uh, being abused, uh, being raped, and being killed. Um, in addition to all of that, uh, we continued to look, uh, and uh, we uh, were able to uh, determine uh, that that Chevy Avalanche that was used during the commission of the Amber Costello crime, uh, that Chevy Avalanche was in South Carolina. And again, with the help of our uh, partners, uh, we were able to capture, uh, we were able to seize that uh, uh, Chevy Avalanche pursuant to a search warrant, and we're certainly going to analyze that. In addition to that, uh, pursuant to the arrest of the defendant last night by the Suffolk County uh, Police Department, we, we obtained one of his burner phones, his last burner phones. Uh, the investigate, as I said, the, this case is not over, it's only beginning. 
We're continuing to execute search warrants, and we anticipate getting more evidence. Uh, before I, I turn it over to my partners, I, I, I want to I thank a lot of people in the room. First and foremost, I want to thank the victims in this case. You know, it's always inspiring as a prosecutor when you get to meet uh, the victims. Uh, and while sometimes our defendants could embody the very worst of humanity, it seems that invariably our victims embody the very best of what it means uh, to be human. And uh, in this case, it was no, no different. Uh, I've gotten to know the families, and I'm inspired by them, and I'm impressed by their patience uh, and by their, their dogged uh, persistence in not only supporting uh, their, their lost uh, sisters or, 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 or mother uh, or, or daughter, uh, but also really, uh, you know, really standing for victims a a everywhere. So I want to, I want to, I want to thank them all uh, so much, uh, and I want to let them know that we're going to continue to work this case. Um, the next thing I want to do, I just want to thank, I th want to thank uh, our partners. I want to thank uh, Suffolk County Police Commissioner Rodney Harrison. Um, you know, we said it was a change, and when we talked about, you know, not going before the media, if you see. Um, you know, Rodney did go before the media, uh, but it was always in a very controlled manner, and it was always with a controlled purpose. Again, we did that because we knew we were playing before a, an audience of one person. Uh, and so I want to thank Rodney for his partnership. Uh, most importantly, I want to thank Rodney for his integrity. I think in the past, what the reason why uh, uh, these various investigations fell short was because there was a lot of outside influence, a lot of people who had nothing to do with the investigation, nothing to do with the, um, uh, the, the investigation or any of the agencies that were actually handling the investigation. They still asserted pressure on those investigations. That did not happen with our task force. Our task force were, was run by our members, uh, and we did uh, what we thought was in the best uh, the best investigative steps and what was in the best interest of the of the investigation. So I want to thank Rodney for that uh, and, and his whole team. I, I know that we have Suffolk County homicide here, Kevin Beyer. Uh, we, we, we've got uh, Inspector Rowan. Uh, and I know that they've been around and I know that they're here and I know that they stand in the shoes of their past investigators. And I want to congratulate them and I want to thank them for their partnership. Uh, I also want to thank... Uh, uh, Sheriff Errol Toulon, everything I said about uh, Rodney, I could say about Errol. Uh, Errol uh, is an unbelievable partner. Uh, he was an unbelievable partner in this case. Uh, during the, the pendency of this case, and one of the reasons why we, we had to take this case down was we learned that the defendant was using these alternate uh, um, identities and these alternate instruments to continue to patronize sex workers. Uh, which, of course, made us very nervous. Uh, but with, with the help of, of um, the sheriff and his database and his uh, analysts, we were able to continually uh, stay uh, one, uh, one step ahead of the defendant. So, so thank you, uh, Sheriff Toulon. I want to thank um, the FBI. I know um, Assistant Director in Charge Michael Brodak is here. I want to thank his entire team. You know, when you have the FBI... Uh, not only do you have tremendous resources uh, and insight, 
whether it's the behavioral uh, sciences unit, whether it's CAST, uh, whether it's CART, which is their computer unit, but you also have the ability to seize a car in uh, South Carolina. I can't seize a car in South Carolina without uh, the, the FBI. So, so thank you for that, uh, and thank you for your partnership, and thank you for, for, for your willingness uh, to work with us. I want to I want to um, thank the New York State Troopers. Uh, I know Major Udis is here and his team. Uh, you know, uh, this case is is emblematic of cooperation, but we always get that same level no matter what uh, case we're working, so I want to thank them. Their investigators did a great, uh, um, uh, did great work on this job and uh, in this case, and we couldn't have done it without them. Um, lastly, I want to thank uh, Nassau County Police Commissioner Pat Ryder. I don't know if he's here. Did he make it? <laughs> um, you know, this, this case, as I said, spans, you know, 13 years, and during that time, um, you know, Pat Ryder has been our neighbor to the West. When it started, I think he was a sergeant, uh, detective sergeant, maybe a uh, uniform sergeant, but whatever. Whenever we needed something to be done, or whenever the thing to be done, uh, Pat Ryder would do it, and he would do it quietly without much fanfare, and we know he would keep the confidentiality of our grand jury and our investigation. So I want to thank him for that. Um, and with that, I will turn it over to uh, Commissioner Rodney Harrison. We've been listening to an update out of Long Island, New York, uh, Suffolk County District Attorney uh, Tierney talking to us, uh, giving us new details about a suspe suspected serial killer named Rex Hewerman. He's a New York City architect. He pleaded not guilty today after being charged in connection with the deaths of three of the four women that had been known as the Gilgo Four or the Gilgo Beach Four, four women found dead on that beach in Long Island. Uh, Hewerman is also the prime suspect in the disappearance and death of a fourth member of the group. Let's bring back uh, CNN's uh, Bryn Gingrass. Uh, Bryn, uh, obviously a lot, a lot of work by investigators, uh, and lots of forensic details that we got and heard about ways that um, they figured out who, in their view, is the killer. Stuff that police could not have done 10, 20, 30 years ago. What stood out to you the most from this press conference? Yeah, Jake, I think they were so descriptive for two reasons. One, I think because they wanted to tell the public this is every step we took to make this case come to where it is today. And this, again, has haunted police. It's haunted that community. Uh, they wanted answers as to who may have committed uh, these murders. So that's one reason. The second is you heard mitochondrial DNA. Now, I actually had an up-close look at a case being solved by the NYPD where mitochondrial DNA was used. And if you heard the district attorney there. He said that they got they got his name, Rex Hewerman, basically six weeks into forming this task force. Well, once you have a name, the case basically works backwards. And that's exactly what he is describing for everyone. They got this name, Rex Hewerman. And then from there, they could go back to the evidence that they collected there at the scenes alongside that beach where the DNA, you know, had been weathered from storms. It wasn't that great. They couldn't put a name at that point. And they can figure out, oh, hey, there's a hair in one of in this evidence. That hair belongs to Rec Hewerman's wife, according to him. Uh, so they basically work it as a puzzle 
backwards once they have that name. And then, as you said, they were able to then go to the grand jury and start getting those search warrants, those subpoenas, and go forward with the investigation from that point forward, which is basically, again, the cell phones, the burner phones, the searches that he was doing of family members of the victims, the victims' names themselves, uh, the sex workers he was still trying to reach with burner phones, and all of those details that are just so incredible to this investigation. And again, you just heard him say there, this was something that was continuing. They believe that he was still contacting sex workers, and they had to cut the investigation short because they were worried about the safety uh, of others. But I think that is why he is being so detailed, because that microchondrial DNA is a very controversial topic. It is approved in the state of New York. It's done by the New York State Police in a lab. Um, But it does come with a lot of controversy. So I think they want to hammer home. This is why we want this sort of technology, because it helps clear cases like this one, which has haunted communities for more than a decade. Thank you so much, Brent. Appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss former FBI profiler and director of the Forensic Science Program at George Mason University, Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole. We also have with us CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson. Dr. O'Toole, uh, good to see you again. Based on the details of the suspect and the details of how he allegedly murdered his victims, um, binding them at the head, midsection, and legs, according to the DA, Uh, As a profiler, what do you think motivated him to commit these heinous acts of violence based based on I understand that we're just getting the information now, but based on what you've heard so far, what, what do you think his motivation could have been? So with a complicated case like this, there's never just one motive, but this is a serial sexual killer. So these crimes were done for sexual purposes. And then if you break out the elements of the case, like the bondage on the victims, um, and then we we know after the fact that he would call and um, call the family's homes, it does seem to be that there's um, possibly some sadism um, involved in these cases. The autopsy will bring that out during the trial or uh, the court proceedings. So the acts of, of how he treated the victims during the murders, uh, putting hands on them, binding them, each element was sexually arousing for him. So all of that becomes really the primary motive, I think, in this case. And, and uh, just to dive in a little bit more, drill down a little bit more, why call the victims' families and taunt them? I didn't, I mean, I've seen stuff like that happening in movies, but I, I didn't know that kind of thing actually happened. It does happen. It doesn't happen, certainly, in every case. But um, oftentimes when people engage in that kind of behavior, that in and of itself, hearing the fear in the person's voice, um, if the person receiving the call started to cry, said, who are you? Why are you doing this? That could also be sexually arousing for the person who could be masturbating on the other end of the phone. I don't mean to be too graphic, but we know that um, that's the kind of behavior someone like that would engage in. So um, wanting to hear the fear in their voices is really, to me, pretty indicative of sexual sadism, which is being sexually aroused by the victim's response to the infliction of physical or emotional pain. So the physical pain was inflicted on the homicide victims. The emotional pain was inflicted on family members. And Joey, we just uh, learned that hair from the suspect's wife was also found on or near the victims, although prosecutors noted that the wife was out of town. Um, Explain to us the significance. How do you think prosecutors are going to use that? Yeah, Jake, it's very significant in as much as it then limits it down to him. 
right? What if the suspect's wife is out of town? Then why would her hair be there if he's in town? And cell tower and other information triangulates him there, et cetera. And so it becomes problematic, obviously. And it's a, certainly something the prosecutors will use, I think, with great success. Having said that, Jake, I do, will wish to tell you that at this stage, the press conference seemed to be a victory lap, and it should not be. And here's why. I don't mean to be the downer here. It's a significant development, certainly to that community, that someone has been brought to justice who they believe very strongly is the killer. We heard a lot of detailed information and evidence, much more detailed than I would imagine the DA would release at this point. But there's a long way to go. This is an indictment. And I just want to be clear about what an indictment is. An indictment is an accusation brought by a grand jury, which consists of 23 people from the community, a majority, that's 12, who have to vote out in an indictment. It is not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It is simply an indication that a crime was committed, and the belief is that the suspect here committed it. And so it's very important, as they have this victory lab drilling down on all the details and specifics with respect to the evidence they have, which is a lot to overcome to be clear, that there is a lot more to go. And this will be challenged in every regard, including the DNA, and whether the testing, although DNA is significant, was done properly, whether there was any taint, any contamination. So very good development that they have a suspect and he was indicted, but it's a far cry from a conviction. And that remains to be seen whether they will get it, notwithstanding the compelling evidence that seems to be released, Jake, in that press conference. Joey, Humerman faces um, charges of both first degree murder and second degree murder. Why? Well, the reality is, is that in New York, first degree murder can be pursued against you if you are, number one, first degree murder, if in the commission of, for example, a kidnapping or a rape, there happens to be a murder, that's first degree. What is this, the distinction? New York doesn't have the death penalty. You can do up to 40 years in jail. As it relates to a second degree murder charge, which is premeditated murder in New York, that's 25 years to life. Whether first degree or second degree, certainly you're looking at a life sentence, but I think the distinction as to first was because of the fact that whether there was some sexual, uh, you know, certainly uh, he took, that is the suspect, allegedly, uh, if there was a rape or the kidnapping, that gets you to the first degree. And as I noted, the second degree would simply be premeditated murder. So prosecutors, Jake, generally charge under both theories because that's what they believe they can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And Dr. O'Toole, a profile on a potential suspect compiled by experts reported on by the New York Times back in 2011 predicted, quote, he's most likely a white male in his mid-20s to mid-40s. He is married or has a girlfriend. He is well-educated and well-spoken. He is financially secure. He has a job and owns an expensive car or truck. He may have sought treatment at a hospital for a poison ivy infection as part of his job or interests. He has access to or a stockpile of burlap sacks, unquote. That is a rather specific profile, and if Huerman is ultimately responsible, incredibly accurate, how do forensic profilers go about making these predictions? Like, where did the poison ivy thing come from? Well, these are really not predictions. What they've done is they obtained at, uh, from investigators at the time all the investigative reports, all the photographs, they developed all the victimology, so they were, they also looked at all the forensic uh, laboratory reports. So from all of that um, information, 
that's what gives them the foundation to be able to say, um, this is how we interpret all of this evidence as they put it together like a puzzle. So they're not guesses. They really are based on a complete, thorough, and extremely deep dive into the entire investigation based on actual reports. Joey, is uh, this heading to, this is going to be a life in prison sentence if he's found guilty because there's no death penalty in New York? Yeah, there's, there's no question about that. And again, Jake, prior to that occurring, there will be a process. That process, of course, begins with what we see to be the arraignment. And that simply means that you're informed of the charges against you, your right to get counsel, et cetera. Uh, and then a bail conditions are set. We know he'll be remanded. What that means is there is no set of bail which would allow for his release. Following that, there'll be the, the exchange of discovery that is the, the specific information, excuse me, that was released today to the defense. That'll be challenged. And I would presume if there's no plea, there will be a trial. That will take several months, of course, maybe even a lot longer than that. And then there will be a jury impaneled of 12 who would have to establish beyond a reasonable doubt his guilt. And in the event that that occurs at some point, I believe, which will be next year, if we're looking forward, if there's no plea before that, then without question, based upon the horrific nature of these circumstances and these deaths, it's a life sentence. And Dr. O'Toole, the profile uh, coupled with multiple sets of human remains, uh, the belt with initials on it, and on and on. Why do you think it took so long to name a suspect? Well, that type of evidence um, could not be analyzed years ago. Their technology really didn't exist. So for example, years ago, you had to make sure that there was a root on a hair so that you could obtain DNA. Now the technology has advanced and now they can analyze um, hairs that don't have roots and obtain DNA. So this technology in, in terms of the advances that we've seen in hair analysis and DNA have been absolutely tremendous. And the kinds of information that we can get that will really hone in on a particular person is absolutely amazing. And these crimes were committed decades ago. So his lens is, is at looking at the forensic evidence, him being the, the suspect, looking at forensic evidence from 10 years ago, which probably gave him confidence back then that they could never uh, um, tie him to these cases. Um, these kinds of offenders don't anticipate that there will be these advances in um, forensic technology, which is going to connect them to the case. So it's pretty amazing. Joey, I thought it was interesting uh, that the district attorney uh, kept talking about the, the painstaking efforts they, they made to make sure that the suspect didn't know what they were doing, like a real cat and mouse from a, from a drama about a serial killer. They really were convinced that he was paying attention to see if anybody was on his trail. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, when you conduct an investigation, and to the police's credit, give them credit, there was a convened task force, as we heard the district attorney talk about, including the FBI, including the local sheriff, including a number of other authorities, including the state of New York, to bring about this effort to get their person. And doing that and conducting any investigation, you never want to tip off the defendant because of their activities and what they can do. And so certainly you're going to be very careful, as they were, with regard to getting him. But again, 
again, I would just hasten to add as compelling as it appears to be that the information is, we're a long way from a conviction. And I just was, again, quite frankly, surprised at the nature of the detail that was released. I think the defense will be seizing upon this, looking for a gag order so that the defendant's rights are not prejudiced. Remember, when you have a trial, you have to get a jury impaneled, which would be fair and reasonable to get your conviction. And anything, if there's a release of information, the defense is going to say, we can't have a fair trial. Look at what the DA was talking about. How can I get a fair trial? Uh, but we'll see what happens moving forward. But based upon what was released today, there is a lot for this defendant to overcome if there's to be a not guilty verdict. Certainly, it's clear that they have done quite a bit that is law enforcement of work. And when they ultimately picked him up, Jake, they were clear last night that uh, they believe that they have their person. Joey Jackson, Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole, thanks to both of you for your expertise and, and your time. Much more news still ahead, including the major developments today in Donald Trump's legal fight. But first, the drama in Hollywood. It's not on your TV. It's not in the theaters. It's on the picket line as actors join write, the writers on strike. The president of the Screen Actors Guild, actress Fran Drescher, joins me ahead. In our money lead... Hollywood is closed. Right now, a major union representing 160,000 actors is on strike, joining the writers who have been on strike against the same studios and streaming services since early May. The main hang-ups between the two sides, actors and writers receive very little compensation with streaming services compared to what they get for reruns airing on network television. There are also major concerns about the future of artificial intelligence and the ability to replace voice actors and writers and even dancers. Hollywood A-listers, including George Clooney and Matt Damon, are striking too. But this is not about wealthy actors complaining about being less wealthy. The average actor makes only about $65,000 a year compared to, say, George Clooney. And the inflation-adjusted salary has dropped 20% over the past decade. And more broadly, the issues at the center of the strike will change and potentially cripple the entertainment industry as we know it. Most actors, writers, production crews are losing their ability to make a a basic living. That has a trickle-down effect to other industries outside of Hollywood. And with us now to discuss this actress, Fran Drescher. You might know her from The Nanny. I first noticed her in This is Spinal Tap. She's president of the Screen Actors Guild American Federation of television and radio artists, or SAG-AFTRA. Thank you so much for being here, uh, Ms. Drescher. A lot of our viewers might be thinking, these Hollywood actors, they make so much money, what's the big deal? Help them understand. Well, 99% of our members, the largest entertainment union in the world, are just working people, just trying to make a living, just trying to pay their rent, just trying to put food on the table and get their kids off to school. So that is an illusion. And everything that you watch, that you enjoy, that you're entertained by, are scenes filled with people that are not making the big money. There may be one person in the scene that is, and everybody else are journeyman actors. But we don't stand here just for us. We stand here on behalf of workers across America and around the world, because what's happening to us is not unique. It's just we're able to get uh, people like you to listen to us, but it's not just about us, and it's not just about the people in this industry. Everywhere across the nation and around the world, workers are being marginalized and dishonored and disrespected, and they're losing their livelihood. 
and it's a very dangerous time. And these people that are standing here, they know what that experience is because they are living it. Not entertainment of a dystopia, actually living it, and not like the uh, mega-rich millionaires and billionaires who are running these companies. They are completely out of touch and tone-deaf to what is going on. One of the big sticking points in the negotiations uh, with uh, SAG-AFTRA, with, with your union, has to do with artificial intelligence or AI. Uh, your union rejected a reported proposal on AI from management. Let's listen. I'm going to roll some tape of your chief negotiator explaining why you rejected it. They proposed that our background performers should be able to be scanned, get paid for one day's pay, and their company should own that scan, their image, their likeness, and should be able to use it for the rest of eternity in any project they want with no consent and no compensation. So if you think that's a groundbreaking proposal, I suggest you think again. I mean, there was literally uh, uh, an episode of the horror show Black Mirror on that, based on that premise. Exactly. What is the union's position and on even AI? even that show. Uh, you know, we want to talk about putting up barricades and not having this maniacal, greedy obsession to put people out of work because it's cheaper or more convenient to use AI without any thought or consciousness about all of the thousands of people that are systematically being put out of their livelihoods. It's unconscionable. It's happening everywhere. I was in my neighborhood. I saw a little box rolling around making deliveries. And my heart broke because there used to be a person on a bicycle doing that. What happened to that person? Does anybody care? Yeah. In response to the strike, TV and film studios responded, quote, the union has regrettably chosen a path that will lead to financial hardship, unquote. How long is your union prepared to hold out? And are there resources available to help union members who are struggling get through this? Yes, there always is. The Writers Guild and uh, the SAG-AFTRA is going to have an emergency fund uh, set up with our foundation. Uh, we're looking at the long um, you know, haul and we're looking six months down the road if we have to. But they can be talking to us right now. We would love to make it a six-hour strike. But they said that it'll be a long time before we want to talk to you. And the mentality of them, they said about the Writers Guild, well, if some people lose their homes, that's a necessary evil. So that's who we're dealing with. And I hope that the viewers that enjoy our entertainment gives a second thought about where they put their hard-earned dollars and what companies they are supporting because they don't care about you they don't care about us they only care about the almighty dollar and wall street disney ceo bob Iger told cnbc yesterday that there's a level of expectations that writers and actors have in his view quote that is just not realistic unquote what's your response my response is the man never set foot in the negotiation Nobody saw him. He wasn't there. He's not, he, he doesn't have any authority to speak on it with any credibility. Fran Drescher, good luck out there. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I appreciate your support. We have some CNN uh, exclusive reporting and brand new insight into special counsel Jack Smith's investigations into Donald Trump, the latest interviews that he's been conducting and what they might signal. That's next.
Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a suspected serial killer has been arraigned, what we're now learning about the New York City architect and married father of two, who just made his first court appearance in connection with the deaths of several women on Long Island. Plus, Speaker Kevin McCarthy and House Republicans just teed up a showdown with Senate Democrats over a hard right social agenda added to the defense bill. And now that bill for the entire Defense Department is getting bogged down in the culture wars and leading this hour CNN exclusive. According to sources, federal prosecutors have interviewed two more key election officials in their investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. The interviews with the Pennsylvania and New Mexico secretaries of state indicate that special counsel Jack Smith is focused on actions taken by Donald Trump and his allies to overturn Joe Biden's victory in battleground states. CNN's Evan Pettis is here with more. Evan, do we know what kind of questions prosecutors were asking the uh, secretaries of state? Well, we know in the case of Al Smith uh, of Pennsylvania, uh, Jake, that he was asked uh, questions about issues he faced. If you remember, he was the the elections official in Philadelphia, uh, who was uh, certainly at the focus of some of the the efforts by uh, people associated with the former president trying to focus on this idea that there was fraud in Center City, Philadelphia. Commissioner Schmidt, we had him on the show a lot. Right, exactly. And now he has been appointed. He is uh, the uh, Secretary of the Commonwealth now. Um, in the case of Maggie Toulouse Oliver, you know, she also uh, was questioned in recent weeks. It's similar things, you know, they're, they're getting asked about the effect of some of the, the, the fraud claims and some of the threats that they received uh, and uh, election officials all over the, these seven states that were the focus of some of these efforts by the former president and his allies, not only to, to claim fraud, but also to set aside the, 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 the valid election results and try to replace them with Donald Trump, essentially, even though he had lost them. Interestingly, even though this did seem to happen in all these different battleground states, it's only Georgia that there's actually a a local investigation in Fulton County, uh, which contains part of uh, Atlanta. Um, The district attorney there is investigating the efforts to overturn the election results in Georgia. You have new reporting about Trump's team attempting to essentially dismantle the entire investigation. Right. This is the latest attempt. They've already made this attempt and and have been turned back by the judge who was overseeing the special purpose grand jury. This time they're filing it with the Fulton County Superior Court and the Georgia Supreme Court, again, making the claim that the former president is being traded unfairly, that this uh, special purpose grand jury uh, is not does not have authority to do this, and also that the, the former president's fundamental rights are being violated, and citing the fact that he's running for re-election or for election. So these are the reasons why he believes uh, the, these, uh, the, the, the findings of the special grand jury should be turned away and, and discarded. Of course, again, He's failed before, so we'll see whether he has any better luck with these two courts. All right, Evan, stick around because I want to bring in uh, some others uh, and to make out the rest of our panel, uh, Kerry Cordero uh, and Tia Mitchell. So um, let me uh, start with you, Kerry. Special Counsel Smith is looking at Trump's actions and those of his allies in seven different states. Um, this is a, a, a wide net of prosecu- a wide net that prosecutors are casting here. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, look, I think the fundamental question with this aspect of the special counsel's investigation is, was there a conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election? I mean, there's really no sort of bigger investigation or more important federal investigation 
that I can think of if we think about the scope of what it is that they are investigating, well, that, not just whether there was, you know, an individual action in this state or, you know, pressure by individuals who happen to be associated with the campaign oh, okay. or false statements, you know, whether it wasn't just individual actions or crazy statements and allegations being made, whether it really was truly a conspiracy. And so that's why putting together yeah. the picture that involves all of these different states helps the prosecutors decide whether or not they have that bigger network that uh, tried to overturn the election. Because we all, I mean, frankly, you know, we all just sat here and watch it happen. We were, right. we, we were watching it all in happen. Sight. Yeah, it was, it was so much of it was in plain sight. Well, so much of it was in plain sight, but then also some of it was behind the scenes. Like I mean, the in fake Georgia, electors. There, there was the, the phone and call. And the pressure phone call, yeah. Um, and there also was, I remember at the time, there also was individual instances of state-level uh, yeah. legislatures being pressured in private right. ways. And so that's the type of information that only prosecutors can get from individuals involved under oath in front of grand juries. So, Tia, the New York Times is reporting that one that an employee of the Trump organization has received a target letter from the special counsel in connection with the investigation into Trump's handling of classified documents, a different criminal investigation. Uh, that seems rather significant, a target letter. Right. Well, that indicates that the investigation is getting to a point where they're starting to determine who they think could face accountability, charges, um, indictment, jail time. So the fact that they've already identified at least one individual, and and there could be others, this is just the the first one to come out, means that they're, they're moving forward. It's not stalled. It's not leading to, you know, kind of well, we don't think we're going to charge anyone. It's it's it, at least there are early indicators that they're starting to zero in on who they might hold accountable should they determine that someone should face criminal charges. Evan, does the increased activity in Jack Smith's election interference probe to jump back to that different criminal investigation? Does the increased activity suggest that any sort of timeline when we might see charges or anything, any sort of indictments? We continue to believe that this is nearing the end. Um, and, and one of the things that's been surprising is how long it's taken for them to come back to some of these uh, folks. Because in the case of Michigan, for instance, so I, we reported earlier, earlier this week that uh, the Secretary of State there had been, had been spoken to and interviewed uh, by the, the special counsel. One of the things that is interesting is that, you know, she turned over uh, documents and information indicating that there was these uh, outreach efforts from people associated with Rudy Giuliani to a county-level person to try to get access to voting machines, part of this whole effort, again, to try to find fraud. And, and by the way, that's illegal, right? You cannot get unauthorized access to voting machines uh, in the state level. So. The, that information was turned over a long time ago. So for us, certainly, it's been interesting that it's taken this long to come back to them. The, the, in the, I guess in defense of, of, of all their work there, I would say that there's just a lot of people, right? There's yeah. so many people who are involved in this, and it's taken a while to try to get to the bottom of all of this. And stuff. a lot of scrutiny, too. I think, right. you know, with all how partisan whatever comes out of these investigations, it's it's going to be perceived. I think the Justice, the Justice Department is trying to make sure they are very thorough and meticulous and take their time because you don't want to mess up when it comes time to actually determine who to indict or not. So Jeff, it is it, the same thing. We're seeing the same thing happening. Stakes in are County. pretty high. Yes. J- well, Jake, one, one thing <coughs> that I think uh, one theme certainly we're watching for is 
the accountability level of, of that, that we see coming out of these investigations. If in the case of this very low-level Trump Organization employee that the New York Times and, and ABC have reported uh, received a target letter, this is someone low-level. Uh, are we seeing yet a, a, another time where you know Donald Trump gets away with stuff? And you have lower-level people people, uh, get in trouble. Of course, in the case of the documents, Trump has already been charged. But we're talking about some of the the, the other, you know, the the theme that always emerges in Trump, you know, legal troubles is often the other, the lower-level people get in trouble. Well, and on that aspect, I would just say most likely, I mean, my sort of working premise is that it would be on obstruction. Um, that someone at a lower level would be yeah. involved or potentially charged or criminally culpable, whether they were engaged in the preventing the Justice Department from doing its job, from getting the documents back, preventing NARA from getting the documents back. On the January 6th related, the, excuse me, the election related cases, what I think is similar to those as with the January 6th criminal prosecutions of the Justice Department, which we're still seeing continuations of those cases, yeah. is it demonstrates the scope, the nationwide scope of these investigations by the Justice Department. And what that means as a practical matter is, yes, the special counsel's office is running this election investigation, but there are agents and prosecutors all over the country, investigators all over the country, who are involved in working on these cases. And so just both sets of those investigations, all stemming from that election, um, are are nationwide. And, and T, I want to get your response to the fact uh, that former Trump White House official and Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, uh, testified before the grand jury uh, investigating the uh, election interference. And, all, and also uh, former Trump advisor Hope Hicks uh, did. Um, this has got to probably make Donald Trump kind of nervous. Well, I think, it, I think in general these investigations make Donald Trump nervous. I think at this point, though, he's used to his associates, top allies, even uh, family members. They were questioned by the January 6th committee. Now they're being questioned by this grand jury. Um, I think Trump thinks that he's not going to be held accountable. And I think that's really where people are going to be looking to see. A lot of people hold Donald Trump responsible for the election interference and, of course, for all the fallout all the way up to January 6th. Mm-hmm. But the question these grand juries are going to have to determine is, is there criminal conduct, right. which is a different threshold. And, yeah. you know, that's where the question is, could Donald Trump be held accountable? Indeed. Thanks to one and all. Several presidential candidates are spending uh, summer Friday in Iowa. So it's obviously campaign season. This weekend, they are trying to appeal to a very specific voter base. We'll tell you that story. Then President Biden promised millions of Americans that taxpayers would pay off their student loans. But now far fewer are getting relief. So what happened? In our politics lead, some of the leading presidential candidates, Republicans, are in Iowa today. They're attempting to court the influential voting bloc of evangelical conservatives ahead of the first of the nation Iowa caucuses January 15th. Notably absent today, frontrunner Donald Trump. As CNN's Jessica Dean reports for us from Des Moines, Iowa. A moment where religion meets politics with just six months until the Iowa caucuses. On Friday, a number of Republican presidential candidates making their case to evangelical voters in Des Moines. America needs positive, powerful 
biblically sound leadership to regain the high ground. One conspicuous absence, former President Donald Trump, who skipped the event but will travel to Iowa next week. His rivals, who continue to lag behind Trump in the polls, hoping to use this moment to stand out. President Trump's words that day were reckless. Whatever his intentions in that moment, it endangered me and my family and everyone that was at the Capitol that day. I believe history will hold him accountable for that. Friday's crowd made up of a key voting block of conservative voters focused on issues like abortion and restrictions on transgender rights. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson defended his veto of a bill that would have prohibited gender-affirming care procedures for trans people under the age of 18. I believe that parents ought to be in control, and I also believe in the Constitution. I believe that God created two genders and that there should not be any confusion on your gender. But if there is confusion, then parents ought to be the one that guides the children. Thank you. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, popular among conservatives in the state, has pledged to remain neutral in the primary, but has appeared at several events with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Earlier this week, Trump attacked Reynolds for not endorsing him, writing on Truth Social in part, quote, I opened up the governor position for Kim Reynolds, and when she fell behind, I endorsed her. In response, DeSantis called Reynolds, quote, a strong leader who knows how to ignore the chirping and get it done, while Haley touted the Iowa governor as a, quote, conservative rock star. Reynolds signed Iowa's new six-week abortion bill into law at the event on Friday. It's a law very similar to the one signed by DeSantis in Florida. I could not imagine a more appropriate place to sign this bill than here at the Family Leaders Summit. We have one more candidate to hear from before this event wraps up, and that is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is Trump's chief rival at this point and has certainly been courting evangelicals here in Iowa and across the country, Jake, really hoping to make inroads. And we know that he believes and his campaign believes that coming back and showing up and doing this event by event is what is going to make the difference. So we will see him talking to these voters tonight, and we'll see in about six months from now if it actually makes a difference. Jake? Jessica Dean in Des Moines, Iowa, thanks so much. Good news for more than 800,000 student loan borrowers enrolled in income-driven repayment plans. The Biden administration is announcing that their debts will be wiped away through a fix to the way monthly payments are counted. The plan will forgive more than $39 billion in federal student loans. This comes after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Biden's plan to forgive up to $20,000 in student loan debts for tens of millions of borrowers. CNN's Jeremy Diamond is live for us at the White House. Jeremy, what's the uh, Biden administration saying about this new loan forgiveness plan, which is obviously less than he promised to voters? Well, listen, Jake, what they're saying is that this this program is actually fixing what they're calling historical inaccuracies and failures by some of these loan servicers in terms of counting the number of payments that borrowers who are in these income-driven repayment plans have actually made. This affects borrowers who have been in in income-driven repayment plans uh, where after 20 or 25 years, they're supposed to see the rest of their student debt forgiven. And so that, those are the 804,000 borrowers who are going to see their debt wiped out altogether. 
together. Effectively, what this is doing is fixing mistakes that have occurred over uh, several uh, decades um, and uh, providing loan forgiveness to people who have already earned it effectively. This is $39 billion worth of federal student loan aid altogether. But as you mentioned, Jake, this comes just uh, after the Supreme Court last month struck down the president's broader plan to forgive student loan debt up to $20,000 per borrower for people under a certain income threshold. So this move today is not aimed at addressing that. The president is still moving forward with another plan to try and forgive much broader swaths of student loan debt. That process has already begun through the regulatory system, but that is going to take months, Jake, if not a year, for that to actually come to fruition. So in the meantime, President Biden says that he is committed to pursuing that alternative path for broader student loan forgiveness. And Jake, he's also going after Republicans who are criticizing even today's decision on this. He says that this is this is hypocrisy based on the fact that they supported loan forgiveness during the coronavirus pandemic for businesses. And he also says that their, quote, disregard for working and middle class families is outrageous. Jake. Jeremy Diamond at the White House for us. Thanks so much. Let's discuss with my panel. Tia, on the campaign front, Biden's team says that it has raised $72 million last quarter. That's that's more than doubling Trump's fundraising total. But we should note that that is not as much as Trump raised during this portion of his presidential uh, presidency when he ran. Um, but $72 million, it's a lot of money. Is this going to damp down any of the concerns that Democrats have, uh, the bedwetters, as they're often referred to, uh, about the state of Biden's campaign? I don't think it, I think it might create a temporary reprieve to the bedwetting. But I think Democrats are always going to have some hand wringing about Joe Biden. It just is what it is with his age and things like that. But I think it does send a powerful message because there have been so much second guessing, especially in the last week or so. There's been some great CNN reporting about that said bedwetting. So I do think this addresses it, especially the fact that he is outpacing Trump and DeSantis now. You know, he doesn't have to run against Donald Trump from four years ago or Barack Obama from eight years ago. He's running against, you know, potentially Trump or DeSantis now. And he can say, hey, I've got more robust fundraising than them. So why should folks say that I'm the one who's the weaker candidate? So, Jackie, um, you just saw Jessica Dean in Des Moines uh, covering how six of the leading Republican candidates are in Iowa making their pitches to evangelical voters. Uh, Tucker Carlson is there moderating a forum. I want to get your reaction uh, to an exchange she had uh, with former Vice President Mike Pence. Why do you think the people who swarmed the Capitol on January 6th were mad? And why haven't we talked about that? Well, first off, I, I, I would tell you that um, I think the January 6th committee was a partisan committee in the Congress of the United States. And it, it, and it failed its historic mission of bringing the facts forward. Yep. And I know your commitment to bringing all the facts to the American people, Tucker. And I know we're grateful for that. Remember, um, some of the people storming the Capitol on January 6th were threatening to hang Mike Pence. Uh, and some, somehow that was his response. What do you think? It's such a far cry from the Mike Pence just a week ago who gave a very nuanced, detailed answer to a woman at one of his events who questioned his role in, on January 6th on that day. Who said he could have sent the electoral votes back to the states, which yes, is not true. Exactly. And he, and he said as much. And he was very patient walking her through it. And it was a really good answer. This, he was trying to appeal to a crowd that was never going to be behind him. If you have Tucker Carlson sitting right there, he immediately starts talking about 
the January 6th committee deflecting about talking about the crowd. Later, he start, Tucker Carlson pushes him a little bit more about whether it was an insurrection. And Mike Pence says, well, it was a riot. Um, and so, but this, this shows just what a tough uh, needle Pence is trying to thread here by not ticking off Donald Trump's most avid um, um, fans yeah. and yet still trying to separate himself from him. Well, he's not the only one. Uh, Leanne, listen to Republican National Committee Chairwoman uh, Ronna McDaniel um, talking to our own Chris Wallace about the 2020 election. Are you yeah. saying as the chair of the Republican Party that you still have questions as to whether or not Joe Biden was no, the I, duly elected president? Joe Biden's the president. No, I didn't the ask you whether he's the president. No, I don't think that. I think Do you there think were lots he won, of problems. He won the election. I think there were lots of problems with 2020. You're saying you're not sure as the Republican Party chair that he was the legitimately elected president. I'm saying president. there were lots of problems with the 2020 election and we need to fix it going forward. One of the problems is that... Uh, People like her continue to lie about the 2020 yeah. election. Um, what, what does this say to you? Uh, there are two reasons that Republicans continue to do this. Well, maybe three. Some maybe believe it, uh, what they say. But the more popular reasons is because they are afraid of Trump voters and the voters who Trump has convinced that the election was, in fact, stolen when it wasn't. And the second reason is they are afraid of Donald Trump and the wrath that he brings. And so this is immersed within the Republican Party. They had an opportunity almost two years ago to separate themselves from, the Trump, from Trump and move into a direction of truth, and they declined to do so. So the lead has obtained video uh, from the campaign trail of Republican presidential candidate Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, who is polling quite well in, in several states, uh, agreeing with a completely untrue and frankly unhinged conspiracy theory about the Federal Reserve illegally adding zeros to the bank accounts of media companies. Take a look. The Fed is illegally taking money out the back door, not through the cover channels or adding zeros to bank accounts to the media or their political, you know, maybe your political opponents. How are you going to stop that illegal under the under uh, the table spending of money from the Federal Reserve? Oh, I think that I mean, the answer is you have to actually make sure the Federal Reserve is politically accountable. See, this idea that it's supposed to be some sort of special entity that exists outside the checks and balances of government, that's where the original sin begins. Right. And you're correct to point out what very few people are aware of. Absolutely that happens. Again. It's getting in front of the bitter called truth. I know. So you can't, you, can't, you can't write it. You can't invent it. Again, none of that is true. No. That is a deranged conspiracy theory. And here you have a Republican presidential candidate saying you're correct to point out what very few people are aware of. This is why when you have these candidates that really are trying to get attention, he is polling well because he's been everywhere. He's really been. Uh, but but it's also because it, it's about it's about getting attention. It's about getting headlines. It's about um, appealing to you know, every single voter that you possibly can, even those very much on the fringe. And we're seeing it right there. But because of that, you're going to turn off some other voters who might you know want to be to have someone who's being taken a little bit more seriously. Well, he, I mean, his, his rise in the polls means that he's taking away votes and attention from candidates who actually could be legitimate yep. presidential candidates. Thanks to one and all for being here. How, how Republicans thrust military into the center of the culture wars and what that could mean for our national security. Stay with us. 
In our politics lead today, today the House of Representatives passed a sweeping defense authorization bill filled with some controversial amendments, amendments that would dismantle the Department of Defense policy on abortion, which reimburses travel expenses for members of the military or their spouses getting an abortion, uh, amendments that would eliminate the Department of Defense's Office of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, uh, amendments that would ban the use of federal funds uh, for anything having to do with critical race theory, and also removing funding for transgender health procedures. CNN's Manu Raju is getting bipartisan reaction for us now from Capitol Hill. Showcasing the power of the far right and the political calculations of Speaker Kevin McCarthy. The House today approved an $886 billion defense bill, but not before bowing to the demands of conservative hardliners and turning a typically bipartisan affair into a bitter partisan feud. This is an insult to all who serve. The bill, which would set national security priorities and authorize pay raises for troops, was amended on the House floor to include a host of cultural issues. That's because hardliners threatened to block the bill, forcing the Speaker to allow votes on hot-button amendments, including to eliminate the Pentagon's post-roll policy, providing reimbursement for military personnel traveling to get an abortion and to nix diversity programs at the Pentagon and health care for transgender veterans. Conservatives said the bill goes after the woke military. What traditional East Tennesseans think about um, our military is, is a little different than what some of these bureaucrats and three, three-star generals think about it. Just four Democrats voted for it, and four Republicans voted against the bill that passed on the narrowest of margins. The speaker attacking Democrats. So what they're doing is they're turning their backs on the military. That's wrong. Yet even some Republicans who backed the bill expressed frustration. If we want to show America that we can come together and that we care about women, we've got to stop being assholes to women. I think it's a missed opportunity, uh, but par for the course, given the national politics. Democrats expect the Senate will strip out the controversial provisions. But that would mean McCarthy would have to compromise on a final deal something that risks angering the far-right House Freedom Caucus, which has in the past paralyzed the House and could call for a vote seeking McCarthy's ouster. The Freedom Caucus is not known for losing gracefully. Members of the bloc want McCarthy to hold the line. We're not going to just walk in, do a cosmetic negotiation and, and surrender. We are establishing our position on what the Defense Department ought to look like. Now we ought to hold that line. We're going to drive a hard bargain. What if the Speaker does compromise? Uh... We're going to we'll hopefully preempt that. As Democrats revolted, the Speaker wooed his far right, including winning the vote of Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene by promising to make her a key defense bill negotiator with the Senate. So if you voted no, you wouldn't have been on the conference committee? Uh, of course not, because that, that just wouldn't make sense. Now, the Speaker defended his decision to name Marjorie Taylor Greene as part of that conference committee, even though she is not a member of the House Armed Services Committee, and even though she told me she plans to advocate to try to pull back U.S. support for Ukraine and its war against Russia, a position that does not have much support in Congress. He said simply he is naming people who are reflective of the full Republican conference. And also, Jake, he claimed that he is not being driven to the right by his members. He said he's simply allowing the House to work its will. Okay. Mm-hmm. Manaraju on Capitol Hill for us. Thanks so much. And joining me to discuss is the Democratic Congressman Adam Smith of Washington. He is the ranking Democrat on the House Armed Services Committee. So, Congressman, you voted against the National Defense Authorization Act. You say you did that because of the addition um, by Republicans 
uh, of this amendment that would undo this Defense Department policy to pay for the travel expenses for a member of the military or a spouse to get an abortion, to go to a state where that's legal. Is it clear to your Republican colleagues, do you think, that by adding that amendment and some others, um, this almost ensures that this particular legislation will not become law? Well, first of all, I want to emphasize that we had a very strong bipartisan bill out of committee. It passed 58 to 1. It was a really good bill. We worked with all members. That, that we supported. But on the floor, they added a lot of amendments. Certainly, the ban on the travel policy that DOD has put in place to help people get access to reproductive care was number one. There were also several provisions in there that effectively you know, were anti-trans. There were amendments gutting the DEI provisions. There was a very hard right turn on the floor as to whether or not the Republicans understand that this is not going to pass uh, going forward in the Senate or elsewhere. I think some do, but it's going to be a fight. I mean, the Senate's not going to do this, and we're going to have to have a conference bill. Uh, but I, you know, the folks who supported those amendments in the Freedom Caucus, we'll see how they react when the bill comes back with those things out of it. So what is your response to the Republican argument that if the Biden administration and the Pentagon want this to be the policy, this travel policy uh, regarding going to states where abortion's legal, if they want it, they should introduce it as legislation? Yeah. Well, not everything requires legislation. We've had, you know, broad discussions about the policies that are out there. We, we, the DOD has long had a policy that if you cannot get the health care you need where you're at, they do pay for people to travel to get health care elsewhere. I mean, if you have, a, I don't know, a specific heart condition and you're, you want to go to the Cleveland Clinic or you go to the Mayo Center if you've got a, a cancer problem in Minnesota, we already have in place a policy that allows DOD to pay for travel for health care. They merely added to it reproductive care because of what happened with the Dobb decision and the states banning that care in so many places. So I think this is well within the Department of Defense's purview to implement this policy. Normally, this legislation passes Congress with overwhelming bipartisan support, like you saw when it was reported out of the House Armed Services Committee. Um, what's your message to Speaker McCarthy today after seeing how divisive, divisive this ultimately was? Yeah, I think it's unfortunate. I think it's a missed opportunity to show bipartisan support. But, but look, I mean, that's the legislative process. The first year that I was chair of the committee in 2019, we wound up passing the bill without Republican support. I think the Republicans were wrong for not supporting it, but they made that decision. It does happen. I'm less concerned about the process than I am about the policy. The bill that the Republicans passed makes it more difficult for women to serve, makes it more difficult for the trans community to serve, makes it more difficult for people of color to serve. The policy that they were willing to vote for undermines our national security, and we should be focused on how bad that policy is. And that's why I and most Democrats voted against this bill. So that's the big problem. The process is the process. They got the votes for it, so good for them. But they were putting in place a policy that would undermine the national security of this country by making it more difficult to find the people we need to serve this country. Your reference to African-Americans serving is a reference to the provision having to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion, right. uh, just, for, just for anyone uh, watching. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene tells CNN that she ultimately voted for the bill because Speaker McCarthy offered her a seat on the Joint House and Senate Armed Services Conference Committee. This is conferences committees are after the House passes a bill, the Senate passes a version, and then the conferences committee come together and suss it out and, then, you know, and have one bill, and it goes back to the House and Senate. 
It's odd because Marjorie Taylor Greene is not on the House Armed Services Committee to begin with, but she's going to be put on this conference committee for this. What do you make of that? <laughs> well, what I make of it is the extreme MAGA Republicans run the Republican Party. Yeah, I mean, you, you basically, Kevin McCarthy will do whatever he has to do to appease the most extreme, obnoxious members of his party at every turn. Because that, that bill that I mentioned that we passed out of the Armed Services Committee, that would have passed the House floor with probably 360, 370 votes. We would have lost a few, you know, the Freedom Caucus members and, and some of our folks on the left who don't vote for the defense bill typically. We had a very strong bipartisan bill. But Kevin McCarthy's made it clear, what, whatever the far right wants, he will give them. And no, we've never had anyone serve on the conference committee um, who's not a member of the committee. But again, he will, he will give away what he has to give away to keep them you know, at least marginally happy, I suppose. Congressman Adam Smith, a ranking Democrat on the House Armed Services Committee. Thanks for your time, sir. Thank you, Jay. Appreciate the chance. How police say DNA found on a pizza crust helped them arrest a suspected serial killer. Stick around. In our law and justice lead, a burner phone, a pickup truck, and camouflage burlap. All of that led to today's major arrest in the Long Island serial killings. A New York architect was charged with six counts of murder in connection with the deaths of three out of the four women whose bodies were discovered in 2010. The Suffolk County Police Commissioner last hour at a press conference bluntly stated what he thinks of the suspect. Ladies and gentlemen, Rex Sherman is a demon that walks among us, a predator that ruined families. And if not for the members of this task force, he would still be on the streets today. A demon. CNN's Bryn Gingras joins us now. Bryn, police just revealed more about a possible motive. Uh, What did they have to say about that? Yeah. So after that lengthy press conference, there was a lengthy Q&A session with reporters. And one of the questions was, was, do you think you have a motive? And the district attorney there in Suffolk County essentially said, look, just look at his Internet searches uh, to show the mindset of this man. I want to read some of them uh, for you. He would uh, research Mistress Long Island, for example. There would be um, Internet searches that had to do with torture or preteen girl with makeup. And then there were other searches, as we've already laid out for the viewers, of the actual victims' names and their family members. He was trying, according to police, to research these victims. One of the things he searched, why could law enforcement not trace the calls made by the Long Island serial killer? Or cops, he was interested when cops launched that homicide investigation task force. So authorities said, look, we don't need to prove motive, but we do have a lot of evidence in this case that will be presented at some point to a jury. Another question that's very important, Jake, of course, are all these other murders that really, quite frankly, the community wants to know, are they connected to Hurman? Remember, he's only connected to, uh, he's charged with three murders, connected to a fourth. Um, but the the answer really is they're still investigating. One thing that the district attorney said, uh, Hurman had a permit for 92 guns and they actually removed a safe from his house. So that's going to be part of their investigation. And the hope for that community is that, of course, maybe he is tied to some of these and more families get answers to the law of their loved ones, Jake. All right, Bryn Gingrass with all the latest on that. Thanks so much. When a Pulitzer Prize is not enough to save your job, 
Three political cartoonists are being forced to put their pens down. Why this is no laughing matter, that's next. It isn't just artists in Hollywood impacted by cost-saving measures and penny-pinching millionaire bosses. Three legendary Pulitzer Prize-winning editorial cartoonists were laid off this week by McClatchy newspapers. Jack Oman of the Sacramento Bee, who won the Pulitzer Prize for cartooning in 2016. Kevin Sires of the Charlotte Observer, who also won the award in 2014. And Joel Pett, who won it back in the year 2000. This ends his four-decade career as a newspaper cartoonist for the Lexington Herald-Leader. The people who run these businesses these days measure things in money and clicks. And political cartoons don't make you any money. They don't get you a lot of clicks. And they're kind of a pain in the neck. McClatchy says they, quote, made the decision based on changing reader habits, unquote. But Pet is not buying it. What has changed so much over the last uh, probably decade is that the gatekeepers' uh, tastes have changed. And so has their willingness or capacity to tolerate controversy. And I don't think the readers dislike political cartoons any longer, but the people in charge of journalism are less and less comfortable with them. Political cartoons are important. They date back to the founding of this nation. Remember this political cartoon by Benjamin Franklin? Uh, They are a vital part of the free press. They make you think and laugh in ways that TV news or print newspapers can't. And these layoffs underscore the importance of supporting local journalism and being willing to pay for it. It also underscores how too many corporations are destroying what matters in the United States. Turning to our Earth Matters series, the Acropolis in Athens, Greece, had to shut down for hours today because of excessive heat, while Italian authorities are attempting to convey the seriousness of the weather, naming the current heat wave Cerberus after the three-headed monster that features in Dante's Inferno. In China, power companies are in overdrive as they grapple with their own record-breaking temperatures. Meteorologist Chad Myers is in the scene and Weather Center for us. Chad, this could end up being the Earth's hottest year ever on record. Uh, Is this the new normal? According to some scientists, this might be the new low normal. Uh, You know, you talk about where we are right now here. Talked about this a few days ago about how it was the hottest day ever on record from satellite reviews across the globe and where we were and where we are now and maybe where we'll be in five or ten years. So, yes, even though we're breaking records today, those temperatures may not even break or be close to breaking records as we look ahead for five, ten, fifteen years as things still continue to get warmer. You see 90 million people here in some type of advisory. Now, just because it's hot doesn't mean you get an advisory. You have to be a threshold above something, the normal, 10, 15, 20 degrees. And parts of California will be 20 degrees above normal this week because of the heat dome. Now, this heat dome makes it hot, yes, but it does something else, Jake. It also makes the chance of getting a shower throughout the afternoon lower and lower because the heat is all the way to the top of the atmosphere. On a normal day, you start seeing these little convective things on the ground, and you'll get a cloud about 3 or 4 o'clock, and it'll cool down a little bit. That's not happening because the atmosphere won't allow it. It's too hot up here to even get a cloud. So temperatures right now 107 in Dallas. That's what it feels like. There certainly should be a shower around Dallas somewhere with that type of heat. It's not happening. Not going to happen for the rest of the week here. And also, we've had 1,000 record highs 
over the past 40 days. And just over the weekend, we are likely going to see another 100 record highs, especially across the southwest. If Vegas gets to 118 in Vegas on Sunday, that will be an all-time, never been hotter than that ever in this town type of high temperature. Jay. Chad Myers, thanks so much. Got water? Turns out another drink might be better to hydrate you quickly while temperatures are in the triple digits. That's ahead. In our health lead, the next time you're thirsty and in need of quick hydration, you should grab a glass of milk. Yes, I said milk. Researchers from St. Andrews University in Scotland studied how different drinks rehydrate the body, and they found that while water does a pretty good job, beverages with a little bit of sugar or fat or protein are even more effective. In addition to sports drinks with electrolytes, coffee can also offer you a good amount of hydration as long as you stick to just one cup. I have a brand new thriller. It came out Tuesday. All the demons are here. It is a wild ride through a bizarre era for this nation, the 1970s. It features Evil Knievel and Elvis Presley, post-Watergate mistrust of our government, cults, disco, the summer of Sam, the rise of tabloids, UFOs, and more. I would be quite sincerely honored if you would check it out. All the demons are here. Join me this Sunday for CNN's State of the Union. My guests include National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, Democratic Democratic Senator Mark Kelly from Arizona, and Republican presidential candidate, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. That's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern on Sunday. Our coverage continues now with Jim Acosta, who's in for Wolf Blitzer, right next door in the Situation Room. I'll see you Sunday. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.